Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. I love when you laugh. I just love your laugh. <laughs> I like laughing too. It's a good thing. So why are you laughing right now? Because I haven't been feeling well today, and then I come on, and you've got your iPad on. <laughs> yes. I'm a pirate today. I'm a pirate. We're falling yeah. apart. Yeah, I did something really stupid. I told you last week about the fact that I bled into my eye a little bit in that strange location at the same time. So I had insomnia the other night. I got up at like 2 o'clock, and I couldn't sleep. So I came into my office to work on my twin paper. And I worked on it for about an hour. And then I shut the light. I started walking back to my room and I walked right into a door. Oh, no. In the eye? Well, I hit my forehead and it was almost like my eye was like a snow globe. And there must have been like organized clot. And the minute I hit the door, it all went. <laughs> oh, people, can't, no. people can't see that, but it's <laughs> like firework. <laughs> and, it all, and it immediately got cloudy again. So, uh, yeah, I got to I got to not walk into doors. There's the health suggestion. More rest. Right. Oh my God. More rest. More rest. It's just like what we tell our moms, you know, like when the bleeding is getting better postpartum and all of that, you just got to keep going because you know that you need more rest. And then if it starts to come back bright red, you know, you did too much. So, or you probably... walked into a door. <laughs> or Sorry. don't go into a door. I'm in, I'm in quite a mood today. Okay. Because there's some good things that have happened. Like it's unbelievably gorgeous day here in Southern Utah for the first time all winter. And I got to proofread your proof, listen, excuse me, to your podcast with Alma and Brooke, Mm -hmm. I believe on cystic fibrosis. And I'm sorry, I missed that conversation because it's really a great conversation. You know, I know that the Birthing Instincts podcast is in good hands if I bang into doors and I'm not available anymore. Thanks, Cliff. That was a great, that was, you did a great job with that. Thanks. It was uh, an interesting topic for me, obviously, because I have personal experience with cystic fibrosis. And so, you know, I think that just, yeah, it was very easy to talk to them and ask the question. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. So before I start to get into the why I'm mad as hell part of it, Anything you want to talk about today before I go off on one of my tangents? No, no, I'm just, um, you know, honestly, I'm trying to sort through some of these health things. And it's interesting to be on the other side of, you know, someone who is looking for answers from somebody besides myself. It's always good to be in that role reversal once in a while, right? And just realize like, Getting good care and having people that, you know, know where to point you to is just so helpful. So I'm okay. Anybody to yeah, worry. And I, I know that this, this isn't about you, but yeah. I have a good friend of mine who's suffering some health problems that like she's bloated, she's swollen, she can't, she's short of breath. She mm. feels like she, her heart isn't working right, like it's skipping beats and all that stuff. She mm. goes to see her physician and her physician runs a classic chemistry panel and all that stuff. And yeah, her thyroid's a little out of whack. So they're going to fix that. And, and she has nonspecific. Markers of inflammation like C-reactive protein and a sed rate, which don't really tell you much. They just tell you there's something going on. And I asked her, did she check your heart? Did she like do troponins? Did she look for heart damage? 
this one, I think this friend of mine is quadruple vaxxed. And no, no, wasn't, it wasn't part of the workup. But she's in her, you know, probably late 50s, otherwise very healthy, lives in California, goes for walks every day, takes her dogs. And now she can't hardly get out of bed. And I just, you know, the, the ignorance, the, the, I mean, it's so angry mm -hmm. at what's going on. Cause I got a couple other things. One is a minor thing. Sometimes I have too much time on my hands, Bliss. And I, you know, right now, because when I'm between seminars and I'm home and I'm not working every day, it's, it's, it's great. I'm educating myself. I'm doing stupid things like binge watching series on Netflix and stuff. And that's, that's fine. But I read, I read too much in the news and I listen to like podcasts of people that I trust. And I read like Jen Margulis's articles and furious. And then of course on Instagram, we're surrounded by like-minded people on Instagram. We, we found our tribe, which is really important nowadays because the, mm -hmm. the rest of the world is gone, is insane and they can't be saved. And they keep doing the same thing over and over again. And we all know that's the definition of insanity. And for instance, I just was this afternoon looking through a thread and somebody reiterated, I might have spoken about it before, how the UK now, in order to prevent surprise breaches, wants to do scans on everyone, every woman at 36 weeks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they say, by doing that, we're going to save this many this and this many that. And the, What could possibly go wrong? Gee, let me think about it for a second. What could possibly <laughs> go wrong with you scanning every single woman at 36 weeks? All right. You know, they break the system. They blame somebody else for it. And then they want you to believe that they're the ones that are going to fix the system. Right. And you see this in education. You see this in gain of function research. You see this in immigration banking. The same people that make the regulations that they ignored and the banks then get in trouble. The same politicians, the same people on the board of directors are then brought in by whatever administration's in power to fix the problem that they themselves cause either by an act of omission or commission. So it's, it just goes on and on and on and on. And I'm starting to get, see a pattern of this happening, you know, maybe because I'm in Southern Utah and I'm not surrounded by hectic stuff all the time. So I have a, I have a place where I can retreat to and be calm, which I think we mm -hmm. all need, mm -hmm. but this 36 week thing, it's like, uh, you know, they're going to, they're going to find all kinds of things. How many people are going to have unnecessary inductions for a baby that's too small or a baby that's too big, or there's fluid that's too much or fluid that's too little that didn't need it. But that's not what they, they don't know how to keep their hands off of stuff. They can't stop meddling. Yeah, exactly. And I don't have an answer for you on that one. The answer is to leave them behind. Mm -hmm. The answer is to find your tribe and leave them behind and not partake with them anymore. Let them destroy themselves. Everything they touch, they ruin. And the thing that's really got me riled up, and I think it's probably got you riled up too, is what's going on this week on the um, on social media about this couple in in Dallas, Texas, yes. who had a who had a jaundiced baby. I am like mad as hell. Yeah. And unlike the movie network, I'm not going to blow my brains out on public television, but I'm mad as hell, and I don't want to take it anymore. And we can't change child protective services in every state in every locality, but we can go after Dallas. And I'm hoping by the time this airs two weeks from now that this has been resolved. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't go after Dallas. We should go after these people, these, this doctor, this pediatric group. They should be shunned, right? I mean, they. I have the, the story here, and I made some notes in it because it drives me, it drove me crazy. But the title is something like "Being Treated Like Criminals." This couple, yeah, right. Uh, they 
in the allegations, apparently, they even accuse this woman of being not her. They've got the, they have the wrong name of a person who's got a criminal record. Her, the, the mother's name isn't, wasn't even in the complaint. Now, I don't know how much of this is true or how much of this has been fixed, but that's what's printed in this article that, from a source that I trust. When they, CPS came to the home to take her brand new baby, those of you who don't know, she delivered at home and the baby was nine days old and they were concerned about jaundice and went to the pediatrician that they trusted for the last decade. And, um, and then they had a difference in a, in a like treatment. They had their midwife telling them one thing and the pediatrician was recommending that they go to the hospital. And, and when they said that they didn't want to do that, the, the pediatrician reported them to CPS. And so when they came to take the baby, um, they handed her paperwork you know, verifying that they had authorization to come in and do this. And it didn't have her name on it. It had somebody else's name on it. And so that's what she's also been trying to fight. Like, this isn't even me, you know? So yeah, it's a shit. Yeah. So this, this pediatrician named Anand Bhatt, B-H-A-T-T, from a group of Baylor, Scott and White, I guess that's a pediatric group. Sounds like a law firm, but it's, but it's a Mm -hmm. pediatric group. I mean, whether the woman was had a criminal history or didn't have a criminal history or something like that, you know, they wanted they CPS is coming to take their child away. It doesn't matter who the person is. If that if the rationale, first of all, you said some stuff that's true, but you but there's some things left out. The midwife had a billy blanket at home Mm -hmm. and the midwife got supplemental milk at home. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter. It didn't matter. Nothing mattered they, because they weren't following the directions of the insane medical model. They were labeled and the, and the kid is still. And then and this all happened the last week of March, first week of April. And they set a hearing for something like April 20th. So the, the kid's missing from its mother. And the hearing is three to four weeks from when, when the, this event happened. This is this is insane. Yeah. No, this, these people have lost all humanity. Sorry, I get I get really passionate about this. The Jacksons said they told the doctor they would help with the help of their midwife they would treat Mila's jaundice at home, including phototherapy treatment. Now, Doctor Bott said he had concerns they would not have the correct lights. Doctor Bott, how about going over to the house and checking to see what kind of lights they had? Yeah, he says he he says he reached out to them more than ten times. Well, maybe after the first couple times they didn't want to talk to you anymore. But right. because they didn't call him back, he calls Child Protective Services. Is is he covering his ass? Is he being mean? Does he think he's doing cares more about the baby than the parents of themselves? What what's going on with these people? I know you. I know that's a rhetorical question, but <laughs> she yes. says that, that his text got very aggressive. She said, um, "Yeah, he says that they 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 were refusing a simple treatment." To prevent that can prevent danger, but they weren't refusing a simple treatment. They were refusing his suggestion of where to get the simple treatment done. Right. Right. So again, without my glasses on, with only one eye, I'm having a real hard time here. So forgive me. Oh no. <laughs> Due to the parents being unwilling to discuss the danger and potential consequences of this condition, how many times must they discuss that until you curmudgeon or not curmudgeon? That's the wrong word. Until you club them into submission. Right. Until they do what you the right thing. Right. Yeah. Remember, remember, the basic tenet of medical ethics is that when you counsel people, every single person should agree unanimously all the time. No, no, that's not that's not it. Well, that's not, that's not it. Right. <laughs> How about this one from ACOG committee 
opinion number 664. The use of coercion is not only ethically impermissible, but also medically inadvisable because of the realities of prognostic uncertainty and limitations of medical knowledge. As such, obstetrician gynecologists are discouraged in the strongest possible terms from the use of duress and manipulation, coercion, physical force, or threats, including the threats to involve the courts or child protective services to motivate women toward a specific clinical decision. I guess pediatricians don't have the same guidelines. And of course, it wouldn't matter. The, an obstetrician would do the same thing. This True. is why we, this, you know, I could go on. I mean, I've got, I, I got so mad. I took this paper and I wrote these notes and I could go on. You can't, you can't help these people anymore. Nobody, nobody who did this to this couple are ever going to say they did something wrong. And they're never going to say they're sorry. If they do, I'll come back on a future podcast and apologize. But they won't. Well, I just pray that that baby and mama are reunited because obviously this is going to have some serious effects on breastfeeding and bonding and all of that. So I hope this is resolved soon. And um, yeah. Yeah, but I'm, what I'm saying, what I'm saying is just can't just, you can't just, we can't just let this go. I mean, we can't fix every event that happens. But I think this one, our listeners should be writing the office of Dr. Bott mm -hmm. and complaining. They should go online and complain, or they at least should ask Dr. Bott to come out and clarify his position. Maybe we shouldn't jump to the same conclusions that they do and assume somebody did something wrong. Maybe this story isn't accurate, but we certainly deserve clarification. And we should contact Child Protective Services. And if you live in the Dallas area, you should contact your elected representatives and find out what the F is going on with your people there. Good recommendations. I get okay. that you're so fired up today. Oh, I mean, that just that me me going. I just also happened to see, again, totally off topic, but totally off our topic, but not off topic, is, of course, I just saw on Instagram some, some body cam footage that was just released from January 6th of, what, 2021? So what is it now, over two years ago? And it shows the people in the Senate chambers, including Jacob Shandley, the, sh the, the shaman guy, being, being talked to, saying, saying thank you to the police, being escorted out by the police, you know, very peaceful, very calm. None of that was shown to the United States public. None of that was shown to Jacob Shandley's lawyer. He wasn't given that information when, when he was sentenced to 10 years in prison or four years, excuse me, four years in prison. Uh, fortunately, he's out now because people kept digging. Some people in Congress kept digging. Some reporters kept digging. Some people never gave up on the guy. Uh, and that's the power. That's what we can do. We can't always prevent a wrong from happening, but right. we, can, we, we can't be passive about just letting it go. Can't. Amen. Hey, Bliss, guess what time it is? It's time to talk about our sponsors. Yeah, we're going to talk about Needed. And, you know, that's a product that I've been using, and I think you probably have too. Yeah, and, I love it. Yeah. So tell me why. Well, you know, we're very selective about who we partner with and Needed is an amazing company that's women owned and really has done the work to bring really quality products to the market. One of them is Julie Sawaya, who was a client of mine. She has two home births and we did do an episode on her. So you guys can go back and check her out because it's really amazing they've done. And I love the products because of that. And also I, I really love 
supporting a company that has a supplement that is helpful for women who have nausea. So they have their prenatal vitamins in a powder form and also in another form that's called, they call essentials, which is just the basics. So that if a woman is having nausea, which happens quite frequently, they can still take their prenatal vitamins. So. Yeah. Julian Ryan, they hand selected every ingredient and nutrient dose, and they spent thousands of hours reviewing supplier sourcing records, clinical literature to come up with the best possible combination of substances in their products, which, which include things like their prenatal vitamin, which you just mentioned, which comes in that powdered form, which you love. And they have a pre and probiotic. They have a collagen supplement. They have a stress support, sleep and relaxation support, hydration support. They have choline and CoQ10. And they also have a men's health plan as well. So get your husband's <laughs> online. Go check them out. You go to thisisneeded.com and use the code word birthing instincts. When you do that, you'll save 20% off your one-time order. So that's thisisneeded.com, code word birthing instincts for 20% off your one-time order. Thanks, Needed. Thank you. What's our topic today, Stu? Well, one of our topics is retain placenta, I think. But before yeah. we get to retain placenta, because we have several letters to read, yes, I have some other dumb doctor dogma that I want to talk about because these are some doulas and other birth workers have written in. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we have to spend a, that much time on retained placenta. It's not going to take up a whole 45 minutes. So let me just do this. So this topic I, I sort of labeled as what doctors don't know uh, or or aren't willing to admit they, they should know or what they're not mm -hmm. taught. So I want to read a couple letters. Are you okay with that? Yeah, of course. You are. All right. I didn't blow you away with my fury. This <laughs> might get you... This might get you going. You know, sometimes, Bliss, it just, you got to let it out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I find that talking with you, a lot of times, you're, you have such a calmness to you sometimes that it's very helpful for me. And I have moved out of LA, partly because that that's, I needed that for myself, for my own soul. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes you just, you can't get away from it. And I, because of what we do, you and I, in the podcast, we are lightning rods for stories of people that want to vent themselves. They don't have the same sort of outlet that you and I might have here every week to do that. So they, you mean, they, write, they write to us. You mean bullshit? <laughs> bullshit that people have to deal with? Is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or, or witnessing or witnessing crimes, like Lindsay used to say, you know, having to watch things being done to your clients and knowing it's wrong. And no, it's every day in the hospital. Every, it's every freaking day. day. Every yeah. freaking day. Yeah. Okay. This is from Isabel, and she says, hey, guys, I've been talking about physiologic birth on Instagram for about a year now, and after hearing countless questions and stories from women, I'm finding that what is being recommended to women versus what is biologically, physiologically appropriate seem to have major discrepancies. This is what I call somebody with calm, good English, as opposed to me today. <laughs> yeah, doesn't seem to be appropriate and has some major discrepancies. I like that. For example... Women are told, being told their amniotic fluid is low and that they must induce without being offered a follow-up appointment and without having a discussion about hydration and amniotic fluid levels. So my question is, what are obstetricians taught in medical school? <laughs> and I would add residency to that. Do they learn about nutrition? Liz, I've, no. I've said no. No. Do they, learn, do they learn about how the pelvis functions in birth? I don't think they do. <laughs> do they? No. How can they if, they if they have everybody delivering on their back and we know that that's not the greatest position to be in? Right. We know that it narrows the inlet, other another an outlet and all the other things that go on with that. 
No, they don't know anything about different positions. Is there any education on the hormones in birth and how to support them? No. No, only how to replace them. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, your body's not working well enough. Here, have some Pitocin. Here's, here, you know, have this. Have an epidural. You just need an epidural. That'll do it. Mm -hmm. And then, boy, am I, I'm in a mood. <laughs> and then is there required education as they progress through their career? Well, that's yeah. true. Yeah, there is. It's called yeah. CMEs or continuing medical education. Yeah. Problem is it's not guided as to what they have to take. Well, it is. And actually some ways, because people who want to remain board certified have to take these modules and the modules are sent to you by the American Board of OBGYN. I can guarantee you, they don't talk about the flexibility of the woman's pelvis. It's not in there, right? Right. Mm -hmm. are, there, are there requirements that they update themselves on research or does that only happen by choice? Um, it's a good question. First of all, I have a problem with the term research because I don't think that research means what it used to mean. And secondly, uh, yeah, they, cho they choose what they want to read. And that's okay, because so do I. I mean, I'm not reading stuff on, on gynecologic surgeries anymore or, or um, you know, treatment for fallopian tube cancer. I don't, I don't deal with that anymore. So yes, they should be able to select what they want to read and they should be able to continue their education but what they do is they're reading the journals and they're reading the articles that are published by the same people that have mistaught them in the first place. It gets back to my original theory that the same people who are breaking the system are then asked to fix the system. And that's idiotic. Yeah. And uh, I was looking for, um, I know I sent her a response, but I was looking for my response. But basically, you know, the thing to remember, and it does seem crazy when you ask the question like that. It seems so nuts that the majority of the population of women are going to deliver with them, but they, OBs are trained in pregnancy related illnesses and surgery. They are, that's what they specialize in. And thank goodness when we need that, we need that specialty. It's so great that we have it. However, if the majority of people who are attempting to have physiologic birth are going to a specialist that doesn't specialize in what it is that they're desiring, again, we get back to that's insanity. Just why do we keep doing this if these people don't have the same agenda that you have? Midwives specialize in normal physiologic function of the body in pregnancy and delivery and the dyad of the newborn and the mom. So that's, if that's what you're wanting, if you're wanting that specialty, that's where you should go. And yeah, we choose our own specialty. Like as we, we all have to do um, continuing education so that we don't get stale midwives and doctors alike, but you get to choose what you're interested in. And that's how people tend to have, like, if you look at different specialties or people have different kind of things that they're focused on that that feels important to them. And midwives are the same way too. You know, they might study more herbalism or they might be more interested in preconception or wellness or menopause. And that's all to our choosing after we get out of school, what interests us is the direction that we go with our continuing education. Yeah. The fact that I speak to midwives, you know, at these seminars all year long tells me that midwives are curious in the things they need to be curious about. And that I don't see in my academic obstetrical colleagues. Mm -hmm. um, well, they're curious in, you know, in the problems that occur at the hospital, that sort of thing or whatever, you know, or, or taking a course on hand washing or, you know, whatever, but they're not curious about things that, that they should be curious about that affect the 85% of women in their care who really don't need anything and yet are still labeled sometime during their pregnancy 
as having some sort of problem, you know, something as simple as being over 35 or being under 21 or, or whatever. Isabel goes on, I guess I'm just confused as to how so many doctors are suggesting things like induction and C-section for big and breech babies and many other things that based on so much evidence makes no scientific, medical, or even common sense. Do they just not learn this stuff or is there more to the story? Thank you for your time. So Bliss, do they just not learn this stuff? I think we've already discussed that there's a lot more to the story. Yes, it is yeah. confusing and frustrating and so glad that you wrote in. I think that you bring up a good point to highlight. Yeah, and the thing is, we're not going to fix them. We're not going to change their system. It's not going to happen, not in our lifetimes. Some of, our life, some of us have lifetimes longer than others, but, but it's not going to happen in our lifetime. So you have to leave the system. You have to use the system when it's necessary. The fire department is necessary, but you don't have to call them every time you have a barbecue. <laughs> right. Okay. This next letter is from Alicia, and she says... I wrote down my, my title on this one is doula trauma. So we'll just read this one. These all have the same theme. Hi, Dr. Stu and Bliss. My name is Alicia and I am one of the two birth doulas in Eastern Oregon. I have an eight month old and I have been doing this work for four months. My birth bug started a while ago after my breech home birth in rural Eastern Oregon. So she had a breech home birth. Good for her. Mm -hmm. I decided to fully go for it. Four of the births she's been attended so far have been at the hospital. And I won't mention that. And my first home birth coming up any day now, she's got her first home birth as a doula. She says, thank God. The <laughs> hospital is draining and, I, and all have been inductions. There were friends, clients, so I couldn't say no. Also just need the birth experience. But all in all, I don't know what I'm trying to get out of writing to you other than running to a safe space. Mm. I have a client who is 36 weeks and wants to go, quote, as natural as possible, unquote. She does have the best OB one of the three, I guess, in her area, I guess you could say she's the only OB that I haven't seen be knife happy. My client has mentioned something about my home breach birth in front of the nurse, and now they just don't like me up there. Aww. I can tell in labor and delivery, they don't want this doula in labor and delivery because she had a breach home birth herself. I don't care, mm -hmm. though. Honestly, I wish I could say I'm only going to do home births, but we, only, we had a total of seven registered home births in my county last year. And I was one of them. So obviously she's saying there's, you can't make a living doing home births in her county. Right. I got this text from my client who wants to go all natural, including the pit Pitocin shot in the leg that they did without consent to one of my last clients. One started freaking out, thinking they were giving her a COVID shot. Yeah. I had to calm her down while she was trying to fight off a needle while holding her baby. You know, we just, I just blow over that stuff. But the idea that they're putting an injection into someone and doesn't know what they're getting or why? Yeah, can be scary. Yeah, but gives them the right or the idea in their head that it's okay to do that. What happened to these people? They walk into a door at two in the morning and change <laughs> and become a zombie. What happened to them? How does someone do that? I mean, that's just the that's just the cult the culture that they all exist inside of, and it just becomes like you know just the normalcy of their system. Honestly. Yeah, it's wanting, it's, it's wanting to be part of the system. It's not wanting to step outside your box. It's called mass formation. We yeah, talked about it previously, yeah. Yeah, it's not an individual thing. It's it's how it is working when you step into most of the hospitals. This is not, I mean, we hear these stories all day, every day, and it's not unique to this nurse in this hospital, unfortunately. So keep going, Stu. 
She says, don't even get me started on them doing epidurals while the baby is crowning. I had a doctor ask 10 times of my client wanted an epidural. You know, and when, and when uh, Alicia says that the doctor asked 10 times, some of us may think she's exaggerating. I'll bet she's not exaggerating. <laughs> the doctor kept coming in. It yeah. was probably trying to do it. I'm, I'm free now. Do you want an epidural? I'm free now. Do you want an epidural? I'm between cases now. Do you want an epidural? I can see that happening. Um, that she was being loud. That she was being loud and frightening other mothers and new nurses. That's why he wanted to give her an epidural. Finally, the dad yelled at her. She said, "No, good for him. No means what? No, no is a complete sentence. No is a complete sentence. Mm -hmm. She got <laughs> my mother. I wonder if my mother. My mother was an English teacher. I wonder how she'd think about that." <laughs> She got an epidural three minutes later. I stepped out in the hallway with the grandma. Of course, they kicked them out of the room. And when the anesthesiologist stepped out of the room, he told me baby was coming. Thank God I had my camera on because I almost missed the baby coming out. All the pictures I have captured are so traumatizing for me personally, I have to edit them. The bulb syringes, the eight different hands, mom's being completely out of it. It's so sad, but this is what I love and they need me. I am booked out my first year of business, if that tells you anything. And she finishes, my hands are tied. They don't budge. I have reached out to all the midwives near me and I'm transitioning to home birth, lactation, and student midwife now because I quickly found out that going to the hospital constantly is not okay for my mental health. Yeah. Thanks for being a safe space and educating always. See you in Idaho at the Breach Seminar. Okay, great. In May. So thank you, Alicia. Looking forward to that. One more. You got time for one more? Sure. <laughs> I can't, I can hardly, I can't see you. You're in the dark and I only have, my eye isn't working so good. So <laughs> we are a motley crew. We are. Okay. This is from Maria and somewhere in Chesterfield. I'm not sure what state that's in. It's a 48000 zip code. So, uh, hi, Dr. Stu. I have been listening to your podcast for the past few weeks and I'm loving it. I just had my latest OBGYN appointment and I'm currently 35 weeks and four days. And I last had an ultrasound at 33 weeks. As my first son was born big at 9 pounds, 10 ounces, and was born at 39 weeks. And they want to see if baby is measuring big. This baby as well. In hindsight, I should have declined his ultrasound, but that's beside the point. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Everybody listening, God, make them, make them explain to you why they want to do an ultrasound and see if it makes sense to you. Trust your common sense meter Now they keep bringing up that I may want to consider being induced at 39 weeks, and they want to do continual ultrasounds to get their data to see how big this baby is, okay? I wanna speak on that for a second, continual ultrasounds. To me, that sounds like one weekly. An ultrasound for fetal size at term is, really has no validity, less, unless you're at least two and a half to three weeks apart because of the error of, of the scan. So there's only one, two reasons why someone would do weekly ultrasounds to assess their data. One is they don't know anything, and two is they want to make money. And neither one of those is a reasonable indication for ultrasound. I didn't find that in ACOG's guidelines for ultrasound, that the doctor doesn't know anything or that the doctor needs to make money. That's not in there. So I don't <laughs> think that you should be doing that or anybody listening should be doing that. I brought up not wanting to do any additional ultrasounds as I didn't have additional ultrasounds with my first child after 20 weeks, and there's no reason to it. I said I didn't want additional, and she kept stating that they wanted additional data to assess risks of the delivery. So, Bliss, this gets back to what you were saying just a minute ago. That's how doctors see birthing. And how do they see it? What do you mean when you say that? Risks of the delivery. Well, uh -huh. she's got no problems. Yeah. So they're trying to, again, they want to control. I'm sorry, I took you off guard there. They want to control everything. Mm -hmm. 
And by controlling everything, they, they, they cause problems. And the problem, again, I've said this before, the problems they cause, they do not see as problems. They see their problems as solutions to the problems that might have happened had they not caused their own problem. <laughs> it, again, I'm saying they're insane because they're, no, no one is thinking. No thinking person could think like that. All right. We want to we want to assess the risks of the delivery. Well, how is doing an ultrasound every week going to do that? And and what risks of the delivery are you talking about? Shoulders. Do you think that's what they're talking about? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're talking about shoulder dystocia or. Yeah, probably shoulder dystocia. If they're screening for a big baby, that's their biggest concern. Or that they're trying to convince them that the baby's too big and they should have a C-section or induce early. But the thing that comes to my mind is if someone is already thinking about that and putting that in your brain, the only reason that they're doing that ultrasound is to prove what they already want to tell you. So they're going to be looking for indications that are going to support their desire to induce you at 39 weeks. And, you know, these are, this is when it becomes very difficult for doulas or midwives and monitrice in that role to be able to support because it, once you have put yourself into a situation where that provider is the one that you're supposed to be relying on and trusting for your baby safety and your safety, it becomes very difficult for you, whether it's, just having the confidence to go against the recommendations or, you know, it, that's the provider that, that you're signed up to trust. So it just becomes very difficult to sway away from those recommendations. And so, you know, I feel like we're repeating ourselves with this topic, but it does keep coming back to that. And I had conversations at least three or four times this week that it's exactly the same thing uh, of just, you know, in at, St. John's in Santa Monica, Stu, I don't know if you've heard this, the, the hospital that we used to rely on to be a really supportive hospital, that's where the midwives program was and all of that. They do not want anybody to go past 40 weeks, period. No 41, not 42, but 40. So if you hit your due date, they are going to want to induce you. And talk about not evidence-based. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people need to run away. Yeah, they need to, they need to run away from this. Uh, I don't know. Again, we talked about you're, you're the you're the queen on this is talking about, you know, making this a thing of value. And if you have to pay out of pocket to go someplace else or you have to go to a different location or you have to change practitioners at 36 weeks or whatever, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Find, you know, again, I always say it, find a midwife. I mean, Look at I've I do breaches and twins at home. I'm I'm a doctor, but I act like a midwife. Brooke just did a uh, woman with cystic fibrosis at home. I've done type one diabetics at home. Right? That's not saying that all people should do that, and that's not saying all type one diabetics can have a home birth. But they certainly don't need to fall into this algorithm of the medical model, which says that every birth is dangerous, and and only we can protect you from yourself. I can't, you know, and by the way, you are exactly right about the shoulder dystocia comment because she goes on and she says, I'm working with midwives, but they deliver at the hospital. And I've noticed they do not have the same midwifery model as you and Bliss discuss on your podcast. And it's disheartening to me. She keeps bringing up the risk of shoulder dystocia and the possibility of baby getting stuck and maybe having to do a C-section if that is the case. That's so frustrating to me. First of all, one of the things that we're supposed to do with, uh, first of all, shoulder dystocia is not predictable. Second of all, we're all trained in how to deal with shoulder dystocia. Most shoulder dystocias are easily resolved, right? 
the idea that you're going to use that as a as a another club of fear is you know why are you even practicing obstetric why are you why are you why are you as a midwife why are you doing this you're so right. freaking scared right i'm appalled that they are bringing up induction before i'm even full term and feel like they are making me feel crazy for wanting to wait what would you suggest as far as declining any future ultrasounds in the course of in the, of the, and of course the induction they seem so concerned with how quote big the baby is, but I've had a big baby before and I delivered vaginally and everything was fine. Decline, yeah. decline. Decline the ultrasounds. You, everything that you've told us, and again, we're only privy to the information you've told us, there's no reason you need to have more ultrasounds. There's no reason you need to be induced. Especially, and, if it becomes a, and if it becomes a battle for you, then look, then you intentionally look elsewhere. Yeah, especially when you have the history of a tried pelvis with a quote unquote big baby, which I have a problem with that comment in general. I don't even talk to my moms about size. I don't even use it as a parameter. No. Say it again. Unless they ask me specifically, they want me to guesstimate or, or something like that. I just always use language that's encouraging for them. You know, your baby is perfectly fit for your body. I love, I love chubby babies. They have like the really cute cheeks and, you know, like giving them positive stories and making them feel confident about their body. like. If we have a dysfunction of labor, or like you said, if we have a shoulder dystocia, we are trained to manage that. And if you are fearful of birth and you don't feel like you can step in and use the skills that you were trained, change your profession, find something else to do. Because as far as I'm concerned, you're affecting future generations because the way that we are born and how our moms feel when we're pregnant means something. You know, the, the whole pre and perinatal psychology, that whole discipline talks about how we're imprinted with these fears and these stories and how we experience when we're born. That matters to future generation. We have that discipline pre perinatal psychology. It talks about how our babies are imprinted during our pregnancies and during their deliveries and how are the moms feel and the confidence that they have and the relax and joy that they have in their pregnancy and how babies experience their delivery imprints who we are and that you add all those up all these individual people having these experiences brings us to a society that's broken and dysfunctional so this does matter. It is an important thing. It's not just being selfish or just wanting to have some groovy kind of experience. We talk about this because it matters. Period. Period. You. You're welcome. Yeah, that's going to make a good clip because it's actually, you're absolutely right on. It matters more than just about anything else. And right. I think part the first part of your statement where you said, if you're not comfortable, if you're nervous all the time, one, you're not doing your client any good, but also you're not doing yourself any good. No. <laughs> why why would you want to live a life where you're doing something which makes you nervous all the time? You know, imagine being a lawyer who has stage fright. <laughs> has to go to court. I mean, why would you want to do that? You, so could, true. You, could, you could you could be you could be you could work in a law firm and just never go to court. OBs could work in research, they could they could go teach, they could do something else, but to be in the labor and delivery room or preferably in the person's home, you can't Bring that fear in with you. You have to leave it behind. And, right. and my colleagues can't because they're bathed in it, they're trained in it, and then they espouse it. Everything we've talked about today, about what the midwives or the or the doulas are seeing and what the doctors are doing, is all based fear. Yeah. 
Salty yeah. AF. I have my Salty AF water bottle here. Um, <laughs> Element is one of our sponsors, LMNT. And they are a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the... BS, like us. Like us. Right? I love when you say that. It's, I look forward to it every week. It's got electrolytes in it, which is what you really need when you need a, a replenishment, when you're sweating, when you're working out, when you're in labor, when you've been up for 80 hours uh, <laughs> taking care of somebody in labor. Yeah. It would have been good. You might have been more refreshed if you would have had your element. And I probably would have. Right. It's really good for those sorts of situations. And it's and uh, it, it's so much better than some of the other drinks which have sugar or other fake sugars or things in them, as you know, that I drink. I shouldn't, but I do. So um, it comes in multiple flavors. Bliss's favorite is uh, uh, mango chili and mine is raspberry, mm -hmm. but it comes in. Let's see, I think I got to memorize now citrus and raspberry. Well, raspberry is my favorite and um, orange. And lemon habanero and uh, watermelon, watermelon, and unflavored, unflavored, and, and chocolate salt. Right. Anyway, if you go to drinkelement.com, that's drinkelement.com, and put in the code word birthing instincts, you'll get a free sample pack with any order. Uh, please uh, support them as they support the podcast. And we just want to send our gratitude to them. Thank you, Element. Thanks, Element. And we're back. Thanks to our sponsors. <laughs> All right, so let's get to our topic today, uh, which is what? No, I forgot. Retain placentas. Yeah, I got distracted by all my uh, passion. I, I, I'm uh, mad as hell, like I said. Yeah, I think that's going to be the title title of this podcast. Is I was mad as hell. All right. Um, so I gave you some stuff to read. I gave you an assignment. I hope that you the Google Voice one is really a choppy. I've got the correct words if you can't figure out what she's saying, because the transcription of the Google Voice is pretty funny. But let's start with that one. That's from Marissa. You have that one? I'll let you do that one. Oh. Well, I got, I got three. I, I sent you two. Okay. All right. Well, then I'm going to be doing all the reading. <laughs> all right. <laughs> hey, guys. This is a, a Google Voice. Hey, guys. This is Marissa. Huge fan of the show. Okay. I just gave birth to my second baby, and both births were these beautiful out-of-hospital water births, physiologic up until the third stage. Now, my first birth was a typical putsy primip, 31-hour labor, but my placenta did not come, and I figured, I don't know, my uterus was probably just tired, and so they did give me a IM Pitocin shot at 42 minutes. There was no hemorrhage or anything, but my second birth was very quick, maybe six hours, and immediately after she was born, I began bleeding or hemorrhaging. My placenta wasn't coming. My baby was nursing. I had Angelica Root. Bruce, Bliss, tell us a little bit about that. Do you know about Angelica Root? Yeah, it's an it's an herbal remedy that that can help with uh, with bringing the placenta. Oh, okay, good. Hmm? Okay, that yeah, that's not something we we learn in medical school either. Okay, <laughs> I was I was squatting. They gave me IM pitocin and Cytotec. Then my midwife had immediately extracting, and I did lose fifteen hundred cc's of blood. So they did call EMS, and as they were doing, this is this is not my my bad reading. This is the way it's transcribed. As they were doing at my um, midwife gave me a second, I am Pitocin in the ambulance as a second dose of Pitocin and the ambulance as it was going up, um, my placenta was born. As it was, it was on its way, my placenta was born. So praise the Lord, I didn't have to transfer. I tolerated the hemorrhage really well. Uh, my question is, what are the reasons that this could have happened? I expect my body went into shock. I was shaking, freezing cold, but what are some reasons it could happen? And is likely that is it likely that it would happen again I'm just nervous 
of ever needing a blood transfusion in this age of vaccinated COVID blood. All right. Thank you guys so much for the show. That's from Marissa. So Bliss. Yeah. Um, is it predictable? Retain placenta. No. 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 No, it's not. We're not talking about accreta here or anything weird like that. We're talking about normal deliveries where everything's gone smoothly and suddenly the placenta is not coming out. When do you consider a placenta retained? That's a really good question. I think there's a very wide range of um, of what people would feel comfortable with, depending on whether or not there's bleeding. And I think that that was the issue with your second delivery is that it doesn't sound like the first delivery, it may not have even been retained, at, you know, at 42 minutes. There's lots of people who feel comfortable waiting over an hour. But, but if you have a partial separation, and you're bleeding a lot and your placenta is not coming, that's when we really do need to step in. We've talked about this before. I actually have a client who had this experience and I spoke with her yesterday, Stu, which is really interesting. Um, and she is wanting to have another delivery at home, but with both the deliveries that she did with me, one was a VBAC and then the second obviously was also a VBAC, but she did bleed both times. The second time though, she had a partial separation and I had to go in and, and remove it because if you have something in your uterus, like a big clot or membranes or tissues or the placenta itself, the uterus can't clamp down the way that it is meant to. So sometimes you have to go in and remove those things so the uterus can do its job. And, and I told her, you know, I don't think that you have to have a hospital delivery. Again, I said, retained placenta or partial separation is not something that necessarily will repeat itself. But I do think that it's reasonable to consider doing uh, active management and maybe putting in a port or putting in an IV and being ready for the potential because you have had two hemorrhages now. And this is your fourth baby that, you know, it does increase with, with more babies and that is a reasonable choice. And I would, if you're, as you're interviewing midwives, I would discuss with them how they feel about that. I don't necessarily think you need to go to the hospital to have a subsequent baby. Okay. A couple things I want to say, first of all, Pitocin versus Cytotec. If you're going to do active management, we've always relied on Pitocin as the first line. And lately in this past year, the more I've looked into Pitocin mm -hmm. and some of the fact that it saturates oxytocin receptors and may interfere with bonding and latching and milk letdown and other things like that. It may. Logically, it, you'd think it would because it's going to take up the receptors that oxytocin would then normally go to and you know they get saturated. So I don't know, since I'm not doing birth currently, I mean, obviously everybody's first thing is to give a jab in the, in the muscle or if you have an IV, put it in the IV. Obviously that works faster. If someone's in shock, they're not perfusing their muscle, that Pitocin isn't going to even get absorbed probably for a while. So it might not even do you any good. But I'm wondering if maybe Cytotec rectally might be a, a better first choice. That's just something I'm throwing out there. I will, hopefully people will write in and give us their opinions about it. Because, you know, again, I, I think Cytotec works in a completely different mechanism. It doesn't compete with oxytocin. Uh, so I think that that's something to think about. Secondly, uh, I want to talk a little bit from the medical side of how how we were trained, and I don't think it's that much different now in the hospital setting uh, to manage the third stage of labor. And when I say manage the third stage of labor, I'm saying that purposely because it's managed. It's not something that's left to be spontaneous. And the, probably the main driver of that is is time constraints in a hospital. 
they don't have the time to let you sit around for 45 minutes waiting for your placenta to come out, even if you're not bleeding. So the standard in the hospital is shortly after the babies come out is to start to massage the uterus and generally put traction on the cord. I don't still think that's probably done. I don't think that things have changed dramatically, but that's what we always did mm-hmm. when I was trained was you, you put a clamp on the cord, you know, a metal clamp and you use it as a handle and you start to go, you know, around in circles and back and forth and reverse and, you know, forward and reverse and <laughs> try and work on getting the placenta to come out as fast as possible. And then you immediately gave Pitocin in their IV and that's how it was managed. It was never thought that nature could do this on its own, like of course it does in every other mammal. We always get back to the fact that no other mammal has active management of its third stage. I don't think, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so they all do seem to do fine, but we have a, this medical model, which is passed down from generation to generation, but it's probably was based initially on the fact that we want to move on to the next room and we don't want you taking up a room sitting here waiting and we're afraid of hemorrhage. So we're going to try to intervene to, to prevent hemorrhage, but in the process of doing so, we may cause the cord to evolve and then have to go up and do a manual removal of a placenta that would have come out 10 minutes later on its own in perfect peace and harmony. So that's just a, a huge difference. Yeah, go ahead. And I mean, you also have to think about... <laughs> I had this doula that I was talking to who's been asking me a lot of questions. She really should be a midwife and I'm encouraging her to do that. But, you know, she said, every time that my clients decline automatic Pitocin, they talk about them bleeding and give it to them anyways. She said they give it, they almost always say you're bleeding too much and they give it to you in their thigh. And I said, you know, the thing that you have to think about is they don't know what normal bleeding looks like. Because every mom is getting Pitocin. So they don't, they, they know what it looks like when a woman is bleeding after she's been given Pitocin. They don't know what it looks like when you leave a woman alone. They don't know what it looks like when babies and moms feel together and protected and the lights are dim and everybody's quiet. These are also things that increase the risk of hemorrhage. So we were taught in midwifery school, don't, they called it fundus fiddling. So you don't mess with the fundus when the placenta's in. Don't massage it. Don't pull on the cord because those things actually also can cause hemorrhaging. So you're like you were saying earlier, you're causing the hemorrhage and then you're giving the medication to deal with the hemorrhage that you caused. And then we're dealing with breastfeeding issues and postpartum depression because we are giving everybody Pitocin that's affecting our normal hormones. So that model, those nurses, those doctors, everybody that's involved with that, they don't know what it looks like when a woman has a physiologic birth. It's not even something. So every every bleed is scary to them because they're interfering with the process. Same as with shoulder dystocia. They're doing all of these things to rush the process and then they get shoulder dystocia and they're terrified of it. Well, you know, if we left things alone, you probably wouldn't see these problems as much, but they don't know that because it's the the water that they swim in. You know, we did a podcast a long time ago we called Complicating the Simple. Yeah. <laughs> and this is and this is exactly what you're describing right now. What causes the uterus to contract after after the baby is born? The release of oxytocin. What's the best way to get oxytocin to be released? Have your baby with you. Put your baby on the chest yeah. and smell your baby. We always say that in the midwife. Midwives always say, smell your baby. And, you know, if you put the baby to latch, but just feel the love that you're experiencing for your baby is going to 
and, and your partner and you're going to be secreting oxytocin and you're going to see much less need for intervention. You're right. That was brilliant though, because I didn't think of it the way you thought of it is that they've never seen unmedicated delivery. Well, they have, but but they're always panicked about it because they're, they're, they were, they're standing there with their needle, with their Pitocin, wanting to give it somebody saying no. And then they get all agitated because they can't do their routine. It's it's, right. uh, it's strange. Okay. So you have a real short one you want to read. Thanks, Marissa, for that. Because this yes. one sort of ties into the same one. Yeah. So hi, Dr. Sue and Bliss. I was wondering if you guys ever deal with routine placenta. Yeah. We see it in our career, of course. Do you work under a certain time frame, or do you go by the status of the mom? I'm a doula at a birth. It's her second baby. It's been five hours since birth. I think this is awesome that she's writing us as she's at the birth. Um, a drained bladder, no heavy bleeding, but no placenta either. I've not seen placenta wait this long before. Thank you so much for all you do, Chris. I'd love to hear what you have to say about that one. Well, I I would be uncomfortable with five hours, partly because I wanted to go home about an hour before that. <laughs> so I mean, usually we stay at a home birth, what, three to four hours on average, you know, sometimes it's less and sometimes it's longer, but you know, at five hours, if there's no bleeding and no separation that, that again, I don't have a, a time limit. I don't like numbers. People know that listen to me. They don't, they know I don't like having even numbers because even numbers are bullshit. They're made up. They're used. So, but that just seems something's not right because nature wouldn't normally do that. So something isn't quite right about that. So I would be a little concerned, you know, probably for me, I would get, I would get antsy after an hour, but again, an hour is an artificial time amount too. So at some point I would probably try to go up and feel and see if the placenta is just sitting in the lower uterine segment. Has it already detached and it's sitting there as uterus filling up with blood behind it? You know, if there was no evidence of that, then I guess you can wait. There's probably nothing. If the woman is completely stable and there's not bleeding and, there's, and the uterus isn't filling with blood, and everything else seems to be going fine. I don't see a problem. It's not a it's not a greater risk of infection as long as you don't keep keep examining her and keep putting it, anything up there. But at some point, I think you have to make a decision. And you know, manual removal of the placenta is not the devil. I mean, it's it's a great tool to have. And problem is, is how does it get taught? It only gets taught in general when there's a problem. Right. So in this particular case, if there has been a midwife there that had never done a manual removal of the placenta, this would be a perfect case to do it in because. It's been five hours. She's, it's not emergent. And, you know, at, at some point, you're probably going to need to intervene. That would be my take on this. I don't know how much long, you know, how long can you really wait? Uh, because at some point, you do have to go home. Yeah. So in our training, and this may not be true for every midwife, but in our training, if you don't have a bleed, if you're not bleeding and handling an emergency, you should not try and remove that placenta you should go in because you could have a placenta that is ad abnormally adhered, even partially. So you could get placenta partially off and then not be able to remove the rest of the placenta because it, it's an accreta or something like that. So that that's how we were taught. If you have a severe bleed and you're trying to stop that bleed, then you go in and you handle that. If you don't, that is, again, some point I agree with you at some point you have you have to get the placenta out right so it goes outside of the range of normal and um you know in the protocols that that I work inside of if a baby like let's say a baby has tachypnea and it's not resolving 
at a certain point, you have to say this is outside of the range of normal, you know? And so if that's going on for six hours, at some point you have to say like, this is when we probably should transport you to the hospital so that your baby can be watched because this is no longer normal. So I think at some point you have to make that decision with the placenta as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And and so my default position is to actually do something because as an obstetrician, that's, that's the way I was trained. But you're right. Both of us agreed that it's not normal. Mm-hmm. How we manage that normal could be is depends on, I guess, the, the skill and comfort and protocols of the practitioner. Yeah. Okay, I got one. Yeah. I got one more. One more and then and, we wrap up. And okay? the mom. And the mom. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Now I'm going to get in trouble because I didn't say the mom, but right. Yeah, no, if you're not bleeding and there's no real issue, everybody's stable, then this is when you can have that conversation and negotiate like, we can wait longer, but at some point we have to do something because you have to have your placenta be delivered before I go home. Yeah. You're right. I shouldn't take it for granted, but in our model, it's a given that that uh, informed consent and, and that sort of decision-making, leaving, leaving it up to the, the mom and the family is is innate in our model. But but you're right. We sh- I should have reiterated that. Thanks. Okay. This last one is from Nicole and it's, hi, Dr. Stu and goddess bliss. So you're back up to goddess status. I just want you to know that. <laughs> I hope it's not too late in getting this question in for the retained placenta podcast. Okay. It's not. How about that? We were planning to do this podcast earlier, so that's why, because we've mentioned it several times. Okay. I've been writing writing this note in my head for about eight months and heard today's podcast mention retained placentas, and it was what I needed to finally get this question to you. I have a million things to say about how great you both are. I'll skip that part. (laughs) (laughs) I have a two-year-old and a nine-month-old, 17 months apart, both boys. I was induced at 41.5 with my first in January of 2021, I wish I had found you before then and known I could just not show up until later. Ha ha. <laughs> a Foley balloon and low dose pit to start. My goal was to make it without an epidural, but after a long induction and strong Pitocin contractions, I caved and got an epidural. You know what? It's not caving to get an epidural. I don't want everybody, anybody to shame themselves or feel that, that way. Uh, but I understand what she's talking about. About an hour later, my son was born. One of the reasons they induced me was that my placenta was aging in quotes. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. she puts in parentheses, aren't they all? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, when it was time for the afterbirth, my placenta was taking too long, in quotes. Mm-hmm. So they started pulling on the umbilical cord, which began detaching. I don't remember exactly, but it wasn't more than 30 minutes before they called it too long. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's the standard in the medical model is 30 minutes. That's what's given. And of course, most doctors will never wait 30 minutes because they they got ants in their pants. They can't sit around for 30 minutes. They deemed it a retained placenta and manually removed it. Even with the epidural, it was extremely painful. My midwife brought an OB in to check and there were no pieces left behind and everything looked good. Despite essentially no tearing and no stitches, I had a miserable recovery with a terrible back pain and couldn't stand up straight for months, even after extensive PT, physical therapy. I was determined to have a better situation with my next birth. Fast forward to my second birth, I was determined to have an unmedicated birth and binge your podcast and so many other podcasts to prepare myself. I was due on July 3rd of 2022 and was happy that on my due date, things started happening. So she didn't have to deal with the induction issue that she had in the first one, which was probably unnecessary as well. Not probably. I'll take the word probably out. <laughs> I was, it was 41.5 <laughs> weeks with no problems. It's an unnecessary induction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after having some contractions, curb walking, drinking a germ, drinking a German midwife's brew, to keep things moving. Do you know what that is? I don't. There's all kinds of brews out there. Yeah. Yep. I checked into the hospital with my husband, Dula, tw- twinkle lights and essential <laughs> oils 
prepared to advocate for what I needed, peace and quiet, and have the best birth I could within the hospital setting. Mm-hmm. My midwife was prepared to catch the baby in the shower if I needed, but I was quickly, I quickly was too claustrophobic. So this is nice. She's at least at a hospital that has midwives, even though they're a little bit more, you know, all midwives in a hospital have to be a little bit more medical because it's the system they live under. They, you know, they, yeah, they can't, they can't sometimes do things that they'd like to do. And it ended up having him sideline on the bed, caught by my amazing husband on the 4th of July. Something else that was funny, they kept telling me my husband to put gloves on and he kept declining. <laughs> and they couldn't understand why he wouldn't wear gloves. And he was like, hey, this is my wife and my kid. Why would I wear gloves? Mm-hmm. Right. A 4th of July baby was just what this military family was hoping for. It was so great. We all cried. It was everything I had wished for. My, well, there's more to come. I know. I wished, I wished my first birth had been. The labor and delivery floor was apparently busy that day, so I didn't have to argue with anyone about leaving my baby on my chest. I got about three hours with him before they arrived and did his measurements and asked me 20 times if I was sure I didn't want the hepatitis B given to him. Back to the afterbirth. At some point within 20 minutes after my son was born, they instructed me to push my placenta out. I had only pushed for about three to four contractions to have him, but it took very substantial work and big pushes to birth the placenta. I suspect they were tra- putting traction on the cord at the same time. Yes. Something my doula reminded me of later. My placenta had ripped, but looked complete after examination. And that was that. So later, while holding my baby, they were watching my bleeding and unbeknownst to me, had put me on Pitocin immediately post-birth due to my retained placenta risk from my previous birth. So they put Pitocin in her IV without telling her. Yes, happens right? all the time. All the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we just we even just like blow it off because... No, it's gonna. We know it happens all the time. Yeah. My nurse, was, my nurse was checking me and was a little concerned with my bleeding and called the midwife to update her. She was in and out checking on me. The bleeding continued and she was out of the room at one point. And my concerned husband finally walked out in the hallway to call for the nurse. He was holding our son, and another nurse came and yelled at him for walking into the hallway with the baby. He finally got her to quit scolding him about where he was allowed to hold our baby, and got him to her to come inside and see my bleeding that was spiraling. He was too kind to say fuck off, but that was but was close. She finally saw what was happening, and soon the room was flooded with nurses. They had given me methogen at some point previously, but I had some large clots and bleeding wasn't slowing. They did some manual exams, trying to feel for any placental tissue. Eventually, they gave me TXA, mm-hmm. thought I might have a lacerated uterus. What would she? How would she have had a lacerated uterus? Um, from pulling the placenta off. <laughs> Yeah. It gets back to the same theme. Okay, let's cause a problem and then now we'll we'll come and rescue you. And wheeled me off to the operating room to go under general anesthesia. So she had this beautiful birth. Yeah. Um, I will never forget leaving my husband and son in the room, not knowing what was next. The anesthesiologist had made sure I knew general was my only option since I didn't have an epidural. And he was very clear about his frustration that I was epidural free. Mm -hmm. The anesthesiologist was pissed off that she didn't have an epidural. So inconvenient. As if I gave a crap about what he thought. Good answer. <laughs> it was the most empowering experience of my lifetime to give birth the way I did. Anyway, I had a DNC and they found a small piece of placenta. I had to have four blood transfusions. I woke up hours later in the ICU, a few floors away from my sweet baby boy. I didn't get to see him until the next day. It was so hard on me so sorry. and my family waiting at home with my toddler. I have always wanted a home birth with four, home birth with four kids. My husband had joked before this birth, that if everything went great, he'd be comfortable with a home birth for the fourth. Unfortunately, this experience isn't helping that plan. No shit. Uh, 
So many people say, oh, it's so good you were at the hospital when all that happened. Can you imagine if it had been a home birth? Mm -hmm. Do you understand how many times I say that to people? That mm -hmm. hospitals will, they'll come in, they'll mess things up. They'll cause your baby to go into distress because they've hyperstimulated your uterus and numbed your, numbed your bottom with an epidural and starved you for 20 hours. And then they do a C-section for fetal intolerance to labor. And the baby comes out screaming and they say, thank God you were in the hospital. And I want to scream. I highly doubt this would have happened at a home birth. Yeah. <laughs> and if it had, it would have been a peaceful transfer early on. That's right. Mm -hmm. Anyway, sorry for a long letter. My question is this. We're hoping to be pregnant again soon. Is there anything I can focus on for placental health and anything you can think of that can help my husband feel comfortable with the next go-round hospital or not? So, placental health. No. I mean, nutrition is a big deal yeah. for placenta, but I don't think that that's what happened. I don't I mean, either. When, you, yeah, when your placenta is ripped, that means it did not come off normally. And so for a, a piece to be left behind when the placenta was pulled off and wasn't ready to be delivered um, 20 minutes is, you know, could be, but there's plenty of people who don't deliver within that amount of time. So I think that that is the biggest thing to focus on is the way to which that part was managed. And again, just like I told my client, you know, having, having a midwife who can give you um, these medication, TXA is something we can use at home. You know, if you feel like you want to be proactive, but still be able to have a home delivery, you can definitely utilize some of those medicines to be able to support not having a massive transfusion and being separated from your baby because we're limiting how much bleeding you're actually going to have. And, and it may not turn out that way at all. And you could use nothing, but to make him feel more comfortable, I think knowing that those medications are available and there is something that you can do preventatively is an option. And this is a word of caution for everybody listening that we all come in with a birth plan of how we love our birth to go. All right. And then once the baby's out, then we really don't have a plan, but maybe we should start thinking about a third stage plan yeah. um, of what we want and what we don't want. And we should make that very clear as well. And unless there's a true medical indication for expediting the placenta, and it isn't because nurses are changing shift or the doctor has to go or anything like that. If, you know, if you're bleeding heavily, if there's a sense of problem, that's one thing that's different. But to just say after 20 minutes, we need you to bear down. And for this woman to describe that it was harder for her to push her placenta out than to push her baby out, just wasn't ready. Wasn't so what ready. we're doing is we're treating, we're, we're treating what the doctors and nurses want, not what's medically indicated for our bodies. And that has to stop, just has to stop. She goes on, she says, was Pitocin necessary given my first experience with retained placenta? No, no. no. I won't even, I won't even elaborate. I think we've elaborated enough on that. No, there was no history. Placenta doesn't necessarily resolve a retained placenta. Pitocin? Right? Pito what did I say? Placenta. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes, placentas don't resolve. Well, you know what? It actually give yourself a bite of your placenta. That might help, but, but it's not out yet. So you can't really do that. But it just happened to me the other day. <laughs> right. But that's another talk. We've, we've talked about eating placentas before too. No, but giving Pitocin doesn't necessarily resolve a retained placenta. Pitocin is for bleeding. They think, well, by giving Pitocin will make your uterus contract. That'll make your placenta shear off. Well, you know, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we don't really understand why things are the way they are, but there's no reason we always have to meddle. I plan to have another hospital birth unless I can convince my husband otherwise, and I will not let the hospital staff tell me when to push my placenta out. Good for her. Also, anything of concern with having a blood transfusion with our next baby? 
I had a friend who had a similar situation and was given anti-Kel blood type, which was not compatible with her blood. So that's an error. That's a, that's a laboratory error. That should never happen. All right. So no, there's no real risks in that you got a transfusion. Again, we're not talking about spike protein blood or not spike protein blood. We get a lot of questions about that. I don't have any answers, so we're not really going to go into that yet. Um, but Bliss, here's what I would say. Again, herein lies the lesson. The hospitals and government agencies are not our savior. They're impersonal. There's no one is responsible. They're overwhelmed. And it leads to human error, like giving the wrong blood, that sort of thing. So trust yourself, trust your family, trust your friends and your, and your, and your tribe. But don't trust a big hospital has your best intentions. Don't trust that your government, whether it's Child Protective Services or Sacramento or Washington, D.C., has your health and welfare as their concern. They don't care about you. They don't. The individual person might, but the individual person has no power there. So whenever something goes wrong and we look, have government solve it or have hospitals merge with other hospitals and take it over, now we're going to have better service. That never happens. It never happens. So here in life, the lesson is, you know, don't, <laughs> don't trust these people. Just don't trust them, period. Yep. It's sad, but we need to, we need to, Find a new culture. We need to we need to find an alternative economy. We need to find different. They are ruining everything they touch, everything they touch. And it's um, you know we have to we have to live in this world, but we don't have to be uh, blindly supportive of it. And we need to speak out when necessary. And I think that people who are in Dallas need to really speak out. So hope we covered that topic well for everybody. Any I'm glad thoughts? you were fine today. <laughs> Well, if we if we had gone this morning as planned, I would have been much less feisty. But you gave me like five extra hours to get really, really feisty. <laughs> well, it's nice to see you. I'm gonna run and go do a nice yoga class for myself. I hope you have a great evening, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye bye, right, everybody. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram.